Hey there, my name is Ryan Hughley, and I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Our goal is to help as many people as possible meet and mature in the Jesus of the Bible. For more information about our ministry, visit our website at ridgeline.church. If you enjoy the podcast, consider subscribing on the platform of your choice. Thanks again for listening, and I pray God's Spirit uses this message to revive you in a fresh way. Well, one thing I think that everyone needs in life is a few faithful partners. One thing everyone needs in life is a few faithful partners. And I'm not just talking about marriage and dating. We, in our culture, we tend to use uh, that term for the person that we're dating or married to. But I'm not just talking about that. I'm not even just talking about a partner in like the business sense, but even just genuine friendship. Friends are partners in life. In that, they, they help us to be and to become more of the people that God created us to be. I mean, if you think about it, good friends bring encouragement and support when the load of life is heavy. They lend insight and direction when life is confusing to us. They have this way of filling in the inevitable gaps that exist in all of our lives. And so one thing that we all need in life is a few faithful partners. And ministry uh, is no exception to that. Uh, there are a heartbreaking number of pastors that I know or have met or know of in life who are genuinely doing ministry alone. And thankfully, that is a reality to which I cannot relate in any way. Uh, I've been blessed to serve in, uh, to plant and pastor three local churches. And, uh, and in each of those, Pastor Tyler, our executive pastor, who checked you guys all in this morning, if you don't know him, he's been with me as a ministry partner through all of that. And we started his ministry, My XP, together. Now he's serving a couple dozen churches all over the country. And what I love is that our friendship over time developed into this real partnership in ministry. So we work like a left and a right hand. And so I lead our church and he manages it. And, and there's just, this partnership has been a blessing on so many different fronts in life. Um, practically, our gifts and our passions complement one, one another very well. Um, I have no desire to do any of the things that he does. I don't understand most of the things that he does. I had to do a few of them this morning and I didn't do great. And he has no desire to do any of the things, the one thing really that I do, which <laughs> works out really, really well for us. Uh, but you know, relationally, we've been friends, some of you know, since high school, and it's a tremendous gift to have that foundation on which to build after all this time. Emotionally, we've been able to encourage one another through what has been the strangest year of life and ministry ever. And so I would really argue that the greatest gift that God has given to me pastorally has been Tyler as this faithful partner in this work. And if you have been blessed by Ridgeline in any way, then you have been blessed by Pastor Tyler because his fingerprints are all over our church. And so I want you to think about the various partners that you have in your life. It might be a friend. It might be a spouse. Maybe it's a sibling, maybe it is someone at work, but I just want you to think about the gift it is to be partnered with another person in life. And I start here this morning because as we continue this series 
fiercely feminine, we are going to look at another amazing woman back in Romans 16 who partnered with the Apostle Paul to faithfully plant and to lead out in churches in Corinth, in Ephesus, as well as in Rome. And once again, we're going to find so much in her life that we can model in our own. So if you have a Bible with you this morning or an app you like to read on, we're going to start in Romans 16. We're going to move between Romans 16 and Acts 18. Uh, But if you want to go where we're going to start, we're going to be in Romans 16. Uh, Specifically, we're going to start in verse 5. And this morning, I want to talk about a woman named Priscilla. And we're going to call this message Priscilla the partner, because she was such a faithful and incredible ministry partner to so many in her life. So look with me at Romans 16. Remember, this is Paul's closing greeting in what was his most complex and significant letter uh, that he wrote uh, in the first century. So we've already read about Phoebe, who he greeted last week, who was the carrier of this letter. And now we come to verse 3 and listen to what he says. Give my greetings to Prisca and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ, who risked their own necks for my life. Not only do I thank them, but so do all the Gentile churches. Greet also the church that meets in their home. So Paul starts there in verse 3, greeting Prisca, which is the formal use of the name Priscilla. Everywhere else that she's mentioned in the New Testament, the scriptures record her name as Priscilla. And this, uh, he also greets her husband, Aquila. We will learn far more about them in just a few minutes in Luke, uh, from Luke in Acts 18. But for now, let me just give you the cliff notes on how this relationship came to be. Paul met Priscilla and Aquila on his second missionary trip while he was in Corinth. They were originally from Rome, but in AD 49, the emperor Claudius had all Jews expelled from Rome due to constant conflict that he blamed on the Jewish people. And so as a result of that, Priscilla and Aquila had to flee Rome, and they settled in Corinth where Paul meets them. Now, like Paul, they were tent makers, or more specifically, uh, probably leather workers in general, and uh, they were also people of considerable means because every city that the scriptures record them living in, it also mentions that they had a home that was large enough to house a church in it. And so clearly they became quite close with the apostle Paul because in Acts 18, 18, Priscilla and Aquila set sail for Syria with Paul. And on that trip, he left them in Ephesus where they once again lead a church in their home. Now, here in Romans 16, there are, they are living back in Rome again, and they're leading a church there. We don't know how the things cleared up that gave them the ability to be able to come back to Rome, but eventually they were able to leave Corinth and leave Ephesus and to come back to their original home, which was Rome. And in this, we learn a few things about them. First, I want you to notice again in these verses that Paul refers to them as his co-workers, Now, that term in Greek that he uses that we translate as co-workers is a semi-technical term that was used for early church leaders. Furthermore, this couple, uh, again, they had put their lives on the line in order to help Paul's own ministry. Now, we don't know exactly the manner in which they did this, but they risked their own lives or their livelihood in some way. And that, again, makes me think about people like Tyler or people like Denise and Nolan Mewborn or... Matt and Dee Dee Johnson, or Matt and Megan Bourne, and now Mike and Mackenzie Morey. All of these people left their jobs, left their homes, left their families, left their friends to come here to Salt Lake and to help us plant our church. 
And there was very real risk involved in that for all of them. Uh, you know, not everyone even knows this, but you know, like I barely knew the Mewborns before they chose to move here. Oftentimes people assume that like Tyler, that we've been friends forever. We had not been friends forever. I barely knew them. Uh, I knew Matt Johnson because he served on our staff in North Carolina, but I think Dee Dee and I had hung out like a grand total of two times before she decided to move here. Now she's like a sister, but before that, she barely knew us. Like we could have been psychopaths for all she knew. And she was like, I'll move and start a church with you, which looking back was like, I don't know so much about your judgment in making that decision. <laughs> yeah, that's good. So my point is that, that, that these people, like Priscilla and Aquila, risked their own necks, to use Paul's language here, for us and for all of you. And so when I read this greeting here, I feel like I can almost hear what Paul's thinking, where he thinks, man, I still can't believe these people did all of this for me. And I can hear him thinking that because every time I see any of those people I just mentioned, that's exactly what I think. And another interesting detail concerning Priscilla is that, you know, she's mentioned a total of six times in the New Testament. Four of those six times, her name is listed before her husband, Aquila. And at first, that might seem like no big deal, but the truth is this is another example of a potentially significant cultural difference that is lost on us. A wife being named before her husband was highly unusual at this time. And so we have to be careful not to read too much into that, but there is a very good chance that what that indicates is that she had a higher social status than her husband, like perhaps she herself was Roman, um, or that she was the driving engine in their ministry together. But what we do know for sure is that they were partners in their leadership. Priscilla was far from this silent, passive bystander. They were partners in both life and ministry. And we see an example of how this partnership worked itself out in Acts 18. So turn left in your Bibles real quick from Romans, just one book back to the book of Acts and go to chapter 18. I want to show you this. Much of, of Acts 18, if you want to go read the whole thing later, records their relationship with Paul. But there's something about their partnership that I want us to see right here, beginning in verse uh, 24. So Priscilla and Aquila at this time, they're still living and leading in Ephesus. Remember, they had gone to Syria with Paul. He left them in Ephesus to help start this church. And I want you to listen to what happens. Look with me at Acts chapter 18, verse 24. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native Alexandrian, an eloquent man who was competent in the use of the scriptures, arrived in Ephesus. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately about Jesus, although he knew only John's baptism. So they're living in Ephesus, and then one day, this Alexandrian man from Alexandria, Egypt, named Apollos, rolls into town, and he immediately begins to gain attention. He was a very articulate Jewish man who knew the Old Testament, became a follower of Jesus, and the Spirit of God was using him greatly. The one problem with his teaching and with his own understanding of the way of God was that he didn't really know anything about Christian baptism. The only thing he knew about baptism was what had been practiced by John the Baptist. And so look what happens. Verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. After Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. So notice there, 
Priscilla and Aquila, they, they hear Apollos teach, they recognize this gap in his own understanding, and then they took him aside privately to help fill in that gap for him. And so again, because Priscilla is named first here, there is a very good possibility that she was actually the one who did the heavy lifting when it came to this theology lesson. Many of you know Denise and Nolan Newborn. If you've ever had a conversation with Denise and Nolan at the same time, you see this dynamic in their relationship. I've always joked, Nolan is two clicks from a mute. He is incredibly wise and very insightful, but, but by and large, when you talk to them, they're just wired in this way where Denise talks about 90% more than he does. And I kind of read that into this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, in that that was most likely the dynamic that existed in their relationship as well. But what we know for sure is that she was at very least an equal partner of this teaching of Apollos because the text specifically says they, not just him, they took Apollos aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. And furthermore, I want you to notice that it bore major fruit in Apollos' ministry. Verse 27, when he wanted to cross over to Achaia, the brothers and sisters wrote to the disciples to welcome him. After he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating through the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. So because of their help, Apollos was even more effective with the gifts that God had given to him. And so when we look at this couple in general, and I would argue when we look at Priscilla in particular, I, I want to make a few observations that we can find helpful in our own lives. The first one is this. Number one, Christian marriage is meant to model mutuality. Christian marriage is meant to model mutuality. One thing I love about Romans 16, you don't have to go back there, but one thing I love about these closing greetings that Paul gives in Romans 16 is that they serve as this example to us of how God uses all different kinds of people. For instance, last week we talked about Phoebe. Phoebe, uh, that we studied last week, was most likely single or a widow because there's no mention of her husband, which again would have been highly, highly uncommon. So she was a single woman and God used her greatly. And now we have Priscilla and Aquila, and they're a married couple, and God used them greatly. And I think that that's important to note because sometimes in modern Christian church, we have so worshipped marriage that it has made single people out to be like JV Christians who only graduate to varsity after they get married. And so single people, regardless of their maturity, regardless of their age, in some circles kind of get tapped on the head and they're like, you know what? You're going to be such a spiritual person when you get married. And I just want you to know, single people hate you for saying that. And they probably look on you with pity, okay, at the same time. So, so listen, that, that's, that is not accurate. Marriage is just one station in life through which God works. There are so many different ways that God grows people spiritually. So if you are in this place and you are single, and maybe you're single forever, you're not a JV Christian, God still wants to use you, and he's really, really good at helping people mature, regardless of whether or not they are in a marriage. Now that being said, if you are married or you get married, God means your marriage to serve as a picture of mutuality. It is not meant to be a competition for prominence and power. 
And that is the beauty of this example in Priscilla and Aquila. At no point is he dominating her, and at no point is she demeaning him. They're a team. Now, we don't have time for a long lesson on marriage, but God's intent for mutuality, it runs all the way back to the Genesis story. God created Adam and Eve to live a life of mutual service together, and that's one of the first things that sin disrupted. And so rather than wake up every day now and think, man, how can I best serve my spouse? Instead, we have this way of waking up and wondering, man, how do, how do I get everything I desire today? How do I win this argument we've been stuck in for like three days? How do I put myself first? How do I get this person to serve my needs? And, and these are the questions that are driving virtually every failed marriage throughout history. But the good news is, one of the many things that Jesus wants to redeem in our lives through the sacrifice of his own is mutuality in our marriages. With Jesus' help, we can serve one another as partners rather than take advantage of one another by putting ourselves first. Now, a second lesson that we learned from Priscilla's example is this. All Christians, all of them, regardless of their gender, all Christians should be theologically informed which for most of us probably sounds like frickin' duh, right? But it's important that we stop and that we hit on this. All Christians should be theologically informed. Priscilla and Aquila helped fill in the gaps for Apollos together, which means that they were both theologically informed. Now, again, the reason I think it's worth noting is we probably all know this, but you know there are still today entire religions that do not instruct women, and sadly, there are still some professing Christians that legitimately discourage women from attending seminary or Bible college or Bible studies due to the assumption that only men should teach the Bible. But outside of misogyny masked in carefully selected Bible verses, where on earth did we develop this dumb notion that women should not be taught how to think about God? It's insane. And it's entirely contrary to the example that we see in Jesus' relationship with women throughout the Gospels. Furthermore, Priscilla shows us that the church has always desperately needed everyone to be theologically informed, not just for our own formation, but for one another. And so ladies, I just want you to know, if at any point you see a gap in my understanding regarding the way of Jesus, for the love of God, please do not sit back and go, well, I'm a woman, so I'm going to pray that God will send a man to set Ryan straight. Please, please don't ever do that. I am an equal opportunity student. You see something dumb in me? Please point it out. God has used so many women in so many countless ways in my life to help me grow in my understanding of God, and we should all be anxious for that. So back to the marriage thing, guys, if you can't hear the voice of God through your wife and you need me to tell you, that's a problem. She's not the Holy Spirit to you, but I guarantee you, oftentimes, she's going to sound a lot like him. And it's highly problematic if you cannot hear the voice of God seeking to correct you and to form you and to shape you unless it's a male speaking to you. That's not Bible. There's not a shred of biblical evidence that points that direction. And if we don't have the humility to hear and to be shaped and to be formed by anyone through which God desires to speak, that's a problem. 
When Balaam in the Old Testament could not hear from an angel, he spoke, God spoke through a donkey to him. This is not a great connection when I'm talking about men being able to hear from their wives. That's not in my notes. I'm going to back that one up. I'm not going to use that. But all joking aside, my point is that God speaks to us through a myriad of ways. And we should be able to humble ourselves and hear from God through whatever voice he chooses to speak. See, I saved it. Amen? That was a good point. All right. Good. Thank you. I only get applauded for these weird mistakes that I make in my speaking, and I'm not sure how to process that. Now, on a more general point, um, we should all feel the weight of responsibility to grow in our own understanding of God and his word. And by that, I mean God uses guides in our lives, like pastors and professors and mentors. But if you make it anyone's sole responsibility to be the Bible for you, you are in danger and your faith will be malnourished. And sometimes we don't want to do the work of having a relationship with God ourselves. And instead, we want to outsource that to someone else. And that's a problem. And truthfully, when we do, that's how cults start. Is when we don't learn and take the Bible, consider it seriously for ourselves and learn it, and we just outsource it to somebody who calls himself an apostle or a prophet, that's a problem. We live in a day and an age where we are blessed to have an endless number of resources at our fingertips to be able to know God more. So as a result, all of us, women and men both, should be theologically informed. So read the Bible, buy some books, and let's grow in this together. And here's the last observation I want to make this morning about them. Thirdly, we should use care when correcting others. This is a super important point and very timely for us, okay? We should use care when correcting others. Priscilla and Aquila here give us a master class in correction which is great because there are few things that we tend to be worse at than correction. Like think about how many times you've tried to uh, correct something in someone's life and that conversation just like blew up in your face. Or think about how poorly someone has tried to correct something they thought they saw in your life. Like you would not believe some of the emails and the messages and the condescending conversations that I've had to sit through over the years, this past year in particular. And that's not specific to me. I'm sure that we can all relate to this in some way. But should we ever sense the need to speak into another person's life, here are a few things I think we learned from the example of Priscilla and Aquila. First, seek understanding. It's most important. Before you go any further, In correcting someone, you have to seek understanding. It is so significant that the text specifically says, after Priscilla and Aquila heard him. Not mid-talk, not beforehand, like he just had a look, like he didn't get baptism, so they decided to speak into it. After Priscilla and Aquila heard him, the text says. As you can imagine, in this like hyper-polarized culture that we're all living in right now, um, I've had many conversations with people over the last year who have taken issue with something that I've said or something that I have not said that they feel like I should have said. And just because of where we are right now spiritually, because of where we are politically and socially, there are just like this endless number of landmines for leaders to step on. 
And, uh, and here's what I've noticed, though. With very rare exception, what I've found is that when someone has come to talk to me or has messaged me online, which is my favorite, especially Facebook Messenger, by and large, <clears throat> I have not been heard in what it is that I've said. And not like I haven't been clear in what I said, but like I've been misquoted or someone has not really taken the time to listen to the specifics of what I've said, which is uh, uniquely challenging for me because the majority of what I say literally lives on the internet. Like you've got so many opportunities to understand what I've said. You can listen wherever you get podcasts. You can watch on YouTube. There's just so many different ways. And so many times someone has come in and said, you know, you, you, you said this on Sunday. I'm like, no, I didn't say that actually. And I preach from a manuscript so I can show you word for word, or you can go on YouTube or listen to the podcast. And we do this to one another all of the time where we don't really understand what has been said. And so I've seen this where people have skipped right over the need to seek clarification and instead jumped right to accusation and correction. And you have probably experienced that too. And it's not great. And so one of the most important relational practices that we can learn in any relationship is the art of seeking clarification prior to confrontation. And some of us are wired in a way where we just wake up fired up to confront. And if you're like that, no one likes you. And you need to learn the art of seeking clarification prior to confronting people. And listen, it's not complicated. It is as simple as sitting down and saying, this is what I'm hearing you say. Am I understanding you correctly? So first, seek understanding. Second, assume positive intent. This is so hard for me. Assume positive intent. Apollos' passion and fervency were obvious. And it would appear that Priscilla and Aquila seemed to believe that he was really doing his best as a teacher to help people know God. They did not assume that he was trying to lead people away or to deceive people with incorrect information. They don't seem to assume that he was stupid or incompetent or ill-informed. He just had this gap in his understanding and God put them in his life to help fill it. Now contrast that with the way that we tend to talk about those that we disagree with. Or think about how often we jump to conclusions about a person, even a person that we know well, based on negative assumptions. Here's an almost universal example of this. Think about a time that you have been having a somewhat, let's call it, tense exchange with someone over text message. First of all, don't do that. But if you've ever had that, you've had the experience of like you send this text and you know like, this has the possibility of ruffling their feathers a little bit. And you're like, I'm going to do it anyways because I'm dumb. And so you hit send, okay? And that text goes off into the internet world. And you know they've received it. And sometimes people have that little read receipt turned on. If you have that turned on on your phone, you should turn that off. Because we can all see you've gotten our text and not replied. But if you've had the experience where you send off this uh, tense text message, and then you see the three dots, boop, 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 because they're replying. And it's taking forever. And then all of a sudden, the boop, boop, boop disappears, and there is no text. Have you ever had that experience? It's horrible. Now listen, here's what I know. Your mind, when that happens, immediately jumps to negative assumptions about what they're thinking. You've never had that experience, and then thought, you know what? I bet they're carefully considering how to receive my correction. <laughs> and they are so overwhelmed with gratitude that they just need a minute 
to compose what will be the perfect response and how they convey it. That has never happened. We tend to assume the worst. And all joking aside, here's what I've learned in relationship with people. With very rare exception, everyone is doing the best they can with the tools that they have. By and large, that's what's normative. By and large, people are doing the best they can with the tools they have. Now, some of us, admittedly, don't have great tools. And sometimes, even if we have good tools, we do make mistakes. But more often than not, we are all doing the best we can with the tools we have. And so think about how different our interactions would be, even those involving conflict, if we learn to assume positive intent. So the first thing is seek understanding. The second is to assume positive intent. Thirdly, this is important and so simple, keep it private. Keep it private. Notice Priscilla and Aquila did not stand up while Apollos was teaching and say, excuse me, uh, Apollos, you clearly don't understand baptism and we're going to set you straight in front of all of these people. They did not do that. The narrative also does not say that they huddled up with a bunch of other people to talk about all the ways in which Apollos was wrong and how they were going to set him straight. They listened carefully, they assumed positive intent, and then they took him aside privately. So just like most importantly, can we agree it is disrespectful to correct people publicly? That's just not great. It's disrespectful. And then practically, it's also embarrassing to the person. And that embarrassment then puts people on the defensive. And when people are put on the defensive, it makes it far more difficult for them to hear what you're trying to say. And so keep correction as private as possible. And then lastly, explain with gentleness. Explain with gentleness. Now, admittedly, I'm making an assumption on this point that when they pulled Apollos aside, that they were gentle in the way that they sought to bring correction. But I think it's a safe assumption based on the outcome it produced because Apollos clearly receives what they had to say His understanding of the way of God expands, and he goes on to become even more fruitful. And so regardless of the nature of the correction that we might be providing or speaking into someone's life or whatever language you want to use, deliver it with gentleness. The more harsh you are, the more condescending you are, the more dismissive you are, the less likely you are to be heard. And so we should pray, we should choose our timing, we should choose our words, and we should choose our tone with care, and we should always seek to explain with gentleness. Now, as we pull back from the example of Priscilla, here's what we learned together this morning. Jesus calls us, all of us, to participate in kingdom partnership together. That wasn't just a Priscilla and Aquila thing. It wasn't just a Paul thing. It's an all of us thing. Jesus calls us to participate in kingdom partnership together. And that means living in a particular way together. It means living together in a way where more and more what God desires in heaven is happening in our midst. It means that more and more we are living his way by loving him and loving one another well. And I think this is such a timely reminder for us because more and more I am truly concerned 
that many of us are at risk of losing Jesus' vision for the church. We tend to think of church as a place where we come to be encouraged or to be inspired or to be challenged in some way. And while that is correct in part, it is certainly not the whole. The church is not just a place where we come to consume It is a people that we are meant to partner with to see the kingdom of Jesus grow and expand. And that means partnering in service together. That means partnering in prayer together. That means partnering in relationship together. Relationship that presses in even when it's hard. That doesn't run when life is uncomfortable, but rides the discomfort together. One thing everyone needs in life is a few faithful partners. And so like Priscilla and Aquila, let's answer Jesus' call to participate in this kingdom partnership together. Let me pray for us, and then we'll hit some Q&A. Father, I thank you that you have not called us to live life, nor to follow you in isolation and alone. You have called us into community. And I just confess, Lord, that community is messy, and it's uncomfortable, It can be challenging. None of us is perfect. We're all in process, so we don't always get it right. But it's still a gift to us. And so, Lord, I pray that just less and less we would see ourselves as consumers as a part of this body. And instead, we would see ourselves as partners together. Seeking to bring your kingdom in our midst by loving you loving one another, and loving the place in which you've put us. And Jesus, we thank you that you shed your own blood to make that happen. And we acknowledge that you lived and died and rose again so we could do a whole lot more than consume sermons and songs. And so, Lord, would you call us as friends, as husbands and wives, as moms and dads and sons and daughters, and as church members together, Lord, help us to partner together to see your kingdom come in our lives and in this city. In Jesus' name, amen.